Hello, good evening. Hello. Technology, ah, right. oh, dear me, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. By the way, our friend David um, uh, just followed up or essentially tailed on to what we were discussing together, uh, us three, this afternoon, um, and uh, asked whether something further had, um, say, come out of Ireland. Um, I don't know whether we want to <laughs> jump right in, but that is how that is a very fitting chaotic situation. And why would it fit into subversive disinformation, Jonathan? What say you? That's interesting. Well, before I sort of meander into this topic, I wanted to ask some people actually on the ground what's going on. So I reached out to a couple of the uh, NAFO community uh, who are actually Irish and Dublin based to see whether it's plausible that Russia may be either leveraging or prompted, because, of course, the timing is quite extraordinary. He says that it's quite unlikely that generally Russia is detested, even amongst the far-right extremists in Ireland. He seemed to think it's not that plausible that that, that this was really, uh, uh, you know, the timing or the instigation of it uh, was done by Russia. Obviously, however, as we've seen before, they are extremely reactive. So they are going to make the most of this. They are going to spin this as Western Nazis, chaos, etc. And they're also, of course, going to see that injecting uh, large communities of, of, of refugees, etc. And we've seen refugees weaponized over the last couple of years. They're going to see that that's worked rather well. You know, they don't even have to put too much lighter fluid on that one in order to set people against each other. I don't know if that was overly controversial, Alex. I just audio one second. Hold on. You um, he has some uh, audio uh, problems, uh, Jonathan. He will uh, come back right back. Uh, I think he has to uh, recycle. Ah, okay. So don't, don't. That's not my audio problems. Am I coming through clearly? You are coming clearly. So don't worry. Stay with us. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Axel will come up uh, in a few seconds again. We still have our co-host Chris uh, here. So uh, in the meantime, people, please, uh, while we're waiting for our Axel, please uh, retweet the space. Uh, make sure that uh, people uh, are knowing that uh, we have our guest, Jonathan. Uh, think here, uh, we are talking about uh, disinformation. Uh, so please retweet this space. Uh, bear with us for a few seconds. I see that Axel is coming back. All right. Jonathan, how could you say something so controversial that uh, Twitter kicks me out? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I was trying to be reasonable. That's. Uh... Uh, but I think abrasive... Ireland is an interesting... <laughs> this abrasive analysis killed my audio. <laughs> <laughs> I think, though, I mean, it's interesting. We're going to see, and I think this is where we're going to head in this discussion, we're going to see a lot more confrontations, conflagrations, um, disputes, riots. We're going to see a hell of a lot more of this throughout the winter. Um, and it's going to be difficult, I think, sometimes to see the cold, dead hand of Russia behind it um, because they won't always be actually naming the time and the date, etc. But I think we're going to see a lot of dotted lines back 
towards Russia. And of course, we've got the election in uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, we've got the trucker dispute on the border of uh, Slovakia and Poland. And I think there is now plausible evidence emerging of significant Russian interference in, in all of these things. Um, and we're going to see a lot more stuff, and the media is probably not going to join the dots between these and Russia and Ukraine. And they're not going to join the dots between defeating Russia and Ukraine and these problems being resolved. Uh, that, that's one of the things we were talking about earlier, I think, is a, a major challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fair to say if this if uh, this place, this earth, were an organism, you could see that there is a certain element of toxicity and uh, that this, uh, shall we say, that toxicity coming from um, Russia in this instance, unfortunately, is uh, spreading. And as it spreads, mm. it, it is close to saturating parts and uh, certain limbs and certain parts and organs of the body. And I think this is the key aspect because there is a saturation attack in all of what they do, um, either exploiting, as you just said, with the refugee crisis and the, uh, migration, fomenting it first and foremost. Don't forget the, the Syrian civil war was a tool for them as much as it was a, uh, as it was a fight for regional, say, influence, dominance, or, say, um, parking their uh, ships and their <laughs> aircraft there. Um, but in order to, um, say, force migration, seed chaos, wreak havoc on the security and stability of Western society, this is what they need to do. And uh, hmm. as a consequence, we end up with, um, say, migrants being sent towards the Finnish, the Estonian, the Latvian, the Lithuanian border as much as they tried it through uh, Belarus as well. That's it. And if, if that strategy doesn't work, we know from Russian propaganda, they're going to try another and another and another at the risk of being accused of Russophobia here. I mean, if you think of Russian propaganda and the toxic elite, they're like an enormous boil, an enormous pustule. And what we're doing with our incremental approach to Ukraine is we're squeezing that pustule. And this ooze is just like coming out, but it's producing more and more and more at source. What we have to do is to lance the boil, dry it out, clean it up, or it's, it's going to carry on oozing all over our institutions, our democracy, our values. It's going to be whittling them away um, until they're gone. Sorry for that fairly graphic image if anyone's eating their dinner. <laughs> I, I quite like the fact that you said you have to lance the boil because everybody can easily understand it and relate to it. There is a certain thing. The Germans always say that... Uh, Besser ein Ende mit Schrecken als ein Schrecken ohne Ende. Uh, it's better to have uh, some pain quickly rather than having pain ongoingly. Uh, well, in this case, Schrecken meaning horror, but it's also symbolic for pain. But there you go. And this is the interesting thing. I mean, this is going to be the main topic we're talking about because pretty much any Ukrainian you talk to, if they think seriously about politics or engaged in it, and we know many, many Ukrainians are, many have been forced to think about it, unless they've been living in a Russian informational bubble uh, or are a paid asset or agent, um, most Ukrainians will give you a very clear and direct answer. And that is, unless Russia is defeated and ejected from the territory of Ukraine, none of these problems are going to get resolved. And Ukrainians are 
exhausted. They're tired, of course they are, but they are not fatigued, if we can see a nuance between those two foot um, concepts, uh, because they know the minute they flag and stop fighting, um, their culture, their language, their lands will be overrun and destroyed. Uh, and, and those that do engage in politics will be annihilated uh, if they remain. But we hear this topic of war fatigue coming up more and more. And the title I think we've given this is that it is manufactured. It is a political uh, strategy, is maybe too big a word, but it is a political mood, a particular excuse. It's a way of dodging complex issues, making difficult decisions, and really kind of grasping the nettle. And I think the twin topics we're going to unpack here are war fatigue on the one hand, but also the Russian response to that, which is to uh, create distractions. So we've got fatigue and distraction. And it's hoped through both of those that uh, we're going to lose interest, we're going to lose the will to support Ukraine, and we are going to push Ukraine into a negotiation, a bad negotiation. And the time is extraordinary. Uh, Bilt, which I'm sure you'll comment on in a minute, has produced an article by the extraordinary professional Mr. Um, Robka, I think he's called. Um, <laughs> Julian Robka, yes. <laughs> so, major article, and actually quite a few. As with the Time article, there are quite a few serious commentators who are, are actually responding to it, sharing it around and saying, yes, we told you so. This, for me, is a classic piece of, of, of Russian um, propaganda, the same as the Time article, because it contains a huge dollop of truth, a huge dollop of stuff that is quite likely, but it creates a mood, it creates a narrative that is strategically useful to the Kremlin, because they want a peace deal. They want a peace deal that is rotten and awful for Ukraine, and they want that sooner rather than later, so they can spin it as a victory before the election next year. I think this is the key element. The, uh, the Russians, whilst they can produce certain uh, components, such as their drones, their attack drones, uh, whilst they can rely also on the production capacity of the Chinese, uh, whilst they can procure um, 152 shells from North Korea and loads and loads of mines from both um, China and Korea and certain affiliated sources, they cannot actually replace many of the tanks. They can't replace many of the optics. Uh, they can build still, unfortunately, because the sanctions are not working properly. We're not enforcing them properly. They can still replace a couple of components in the, and uh, produce more missiles, which is bad. Uh, but their capacity for production is shrinking. It may be good enough for them to stretch out the war, uh, it may be sufficient for them to you know, hold on for two or three years, but that doesn't help them. What they need to do in order to play their game is to have that sign that the West has caved, because otherwise their strategy doesn't work. Absolutely. They're also perhaps, and this is going to sound odd given the population size, they are running out of cannon meat. Not, you know, I mean, they're not physically because they're going to have, there's going to be a lot of people uh, they can pull. But there are reports from the front that the quality of the cannon meat 
is significantly lower than it was uh, just a few months ago. Um, we've now got people who are decrepit. There are people who have all sorts of uh, drug and alcohol problems. Um, the demographic, the age groupings are kind of going up. So from their sort of source, which is outside of Moscow, outside of Petersburg, Katerinburg and the big cities, they're finding it increasingly hard to get willing volunteers. Um, the coercive techniques are really scraping the barrel, according to these reports, which means that if they are going to sustain these operations um, into 2024, 2025, we'll maybe talk about the economics of that, because they, they quite possibly could do that economically, but they may have to extend draft, the mobilization draft, to the large cities and the, the higher quality cannon meat you can get from there. But that comes with significant risk. Putin has not extended that up until now uh, for good reason. And it would be extremely popular, unpopular rather, and his regime is getting increasingly brittle. Uh, that's uh, an interesting interview with, with Mark Galotti. He uses that phrase early this evening on, on Times Radio. Um, and with the election coming up, that is not the conjunction of uh, talking points and events he wants uh, to be happening there. Of course, it won't be reported in the media, but he doesn't want anything to spoil the picture. In a way, I think we've got Russia over a barrel. And what is the West doing? Pushing Ukraine to negotiate, starving them of the uh, material munitions they need in order to make progress. It's an extraordinary failure at a critical juncture. Axel, I don't know if you'd uh, agree with all of that. Uh, unfortunately, I have to commend you for it. I can't disagree. <laughs> There's a problem in, in, in that. But the fallacy is, of course, um, out of the navel-gazing complacency and fog, literally um, strategic analysis fog of most of our professional politicians who simply would like to return back to normal. There's this tendency always in politics and in this equilibrium, which they all look after. They would like to focus back on the simple problems they have already, which is why, of course, Russia needs to re reinforce this. We, this is where the circle uh, is closed yet again, as you indicated, that um, forcibly elevating or uh, instigating uh, further fomenting crises of whatever kind in the West, so that Western societies and their leaderships are overwhelmed, fatigued in themselves and in their normal operations, that is helpful to them. So you could say that a political move where they sponsor yet another politician to be extremely aggressive or populist or foment someone who is, um, say, denying that there are underlying issues and therefore tries to uh, procrastinate and not decide, equally bad. So you could say that somebody who is preserving existing structures and not uh, adhering to, to, say, not dealing with what the real problems on the ground are. So, for example, if we, there is a migration issue and we're not dealing with it and we're not finding ways to assimilate migrants to the extent that they come into it, and if we don't set up policies to police our borders and make sure that there's less criminal exploitation of migration, um, then we're simply not doing our job. And if you make that job already more difficult and have politicians who ignore it, and sponsor them and support them and distract them, 
then of course you end up yet with yet another chance for the crisis. The, your boil example is perfect. The boil will grow. How do we see this in uh, Ireland? Uh, a failure to address uh, fundamental underlying issues that result from large-scale migration and scarcity of resources, resentments from a local uh, population. Not all, of course, because most Irish are extraordinarily uh, generous and kind, but, but but clearly untreated. This this becomes a problem, and it's definitely a problem in Holland. I was speaking to a friend of mine who's Dutch, um, who of course is horrified, uh, perhaps not so surprised. And he suggests there are two things we should need to look at. And there's no hard evidence of one of them. Uh, but the other is fairly clear. And that is the recent riots in support, or the recent marches, rather, in support of uh, uh, the Palestinian cause. And we're not going to sort of unpick that can of worms. But um, there were a significant number of ISIS flags Hamas flags and so on. Now, this is the area where Russia does well. Weaponizing a small group within a larger crowd, stoking extremism, even though the majority may not be extremist in the line with that point of view, they nonetheless can tarnish everything with that brush. And we've seen in the, uh, the sort of the swastikas and the um, Stars of David that appeared across Paris recently, there is compelling evidence to suggest that, that was definitely linked to uh, a sort of GRU-type campaign. Um, and it is quite possible that the extreme, extreme elements uh, in, in, in recent uh, uh, pro-Palestinian marches may well have coordination and support from the GRU. It's not inconceivable, and it certainly fits with their MO to weaponize democratic processes and weaponize the rights that people have here to express themselves. Um, it seems that that certainly has had a significant impact on the Dutch election. And it'd be interesting to hear anyone in the audience who, who, who has more direct experience of that. The other one is there is some, um, there is certainly some rumours emerging of a Cambridge Analytica-style hit in the days before the election. So in between these weaponized marches and the election, a huge digital campaign. Now, anyone who works in digital media, and for my sins, I do, um, you cannot just rustle something like that up in hours and days. It takes potentially weeks of preparation to identify the audiences, get the data sets in place, the targeting, uh, do initial experiments, test and learn, et cetera, et cetera. Because when you roll that campaign out, you don't want it just to sort of splurge on the wrong people. Uh, you want to make sure you, you've actually uh, hit your bullseye audience because you've got a small window. Um, the jury's out as to how significant uh, these kind of uh, targeted campaigns were uh, during the Brexit vote. Um, and I suspect the data may never be released on that, uh, even if our security services have it. Um, it's quite possible that in the Netherlands, uh, this campaign achieved a significantly higher swing. Uh, controversial, perhaps. Uh, but again, you can trace a dotted line to these digital campaigns. Typically, at the end of the day, you, you'll find some kind of dotted line heading back towards towards Russia or uh, affiliates or entities that are uh, um, you know, supportive of that. I think it's it's good that you highlight the digital media campaigns of such order, such magnitude, and the the layering, the segmentation. 
and then executing it by means of having a variety of cutouts, a variety of, uh, you always have to have local people willing to do so, but you need a couple of nodes. Having that in place, organizing this, that always smacks of a state actor. Yes, very much. And you need a team like the Prigozhin Troll Factory in Olgina. You need a, an expert dedicated team who may well be planning, testing, uh, producing, you know, alternative visual assets, etc., for weeks ahead of something like this. Um, so we've got two things here. We've got war fatigue and we've got distraction. Fatigue and distraction, I'm calling this mirrors and smoke. And I think we're going to see a lot more of it. And we're going to get increasingly frustrated as the media don't spot the patterns in these behaviors through the winter. Ukrainians are tuned in and are, I would say, professionally cynical now from nine years of, of warfare. Um, but And they, they will typically sort of spot these patterns far faster than, than we do. But we are not learning, I think, from uh, the Ukrainian experience. It's a very good point. Uh, by the way, we have, uh, uh, as I said, uh, we should uh, ask for Dutch voices. Uh, my friend and colleague, Ghost, Mr. M, uh, is from the Netherlands and uh, also from a part which I would call the ultimate home of our family, Frisia. So uh, he can opine on this and he can, he can speak to what happened in, in the days uh, uh, prior to the election of Gert Wilders and uh, how that appeared, albeit you didn't follow all the uh, media experience, I think, because we're slightly distracted. But Mr. M, please, Ghost. <laughs> Yeah, well, coming back on uh, on uh, the Geert Wilders uh, uh, thing. Uh, in that case, uh, the Russians have uh, betted on the wrong horse because uh, on the one side, Geert Wilders is very anti-immigrants uh, and uh, those who are waving uh, flags and are f uh, in support of uh, Palestinians. Uh, he don't like either because they are Muslims. So in that way, he has betted on the wrong horse. On the other side, Geert Wilders is a 100% uh, supporter of Israel. Now, there is some, uh, some uh, questions and uh, uh, fear that uh, Geert Wilders is going to uh, stop aid to Ukraine. Well, I can tell you he will not succeed in that because uh, the other uh, majority of the parliament and the people in the Dutch, they are 100% supporting Ukraine. The F-16s and uh, the aid packages, uh, they are already been uh, settled legally. So that it, there is also one thing he cannot change. So uh, in that uh, opinion and that view, uh, Putin has uh, betted on the wrong horse, just to be clear for that. No, true, but uh, I think we, we agree, actually. Um, but I think Jonathan and I are still looking at the fact that even that, even the, just the chaos is worth it. Just the chaos of him gaining 23% of... 35 seats, which is plurality, but it's not majority. So, and him now making claims and laying claim to that. So that the topic of migration uh, and his own, shall we say, 
rather um, unique mix of uh, views and specifically his anti-EU view will be uttered more often than not. Correct, Jonathan? This is absolutely correct. And I'm going to say something radically controversial here. I don't think Russia really cared too much whether Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump won the election. They probably didn't even believe Trump would. Uh, We suspect he himself was a little surprised when he did. That's kind of not the point. The point is to stoke extreme division in the media, to make people feel that uh, on each side, their political enemies are worse than their external enemies and not the other way around. In that respect, he's going to achieve that admirably, because even if it's a small minority, there's going to be a fractious, distracting uh, debates. Uh, even if um, Vilders is, is not going to be allowed to form a sort of coalition, I guess it's looking probably like, like, like he's not, you're going to have embittered supporters who voted for him uh, trying to hijack or sabotage the, the, the system. It's going to create a lot of noise. That's the smoke. Uh, note, I didn't put fire in there. Distraction is all about creating as much smoke as you can um, so that you don't focus on what is important and strategic. And I think that's that's the key point there. Um, the fact that Trump won, that was great, you know, for them. But either way, they would have found a way to weaponize it. Um, it's a little bit that film with, with Al Pacino, isn't it, where he plays the devil. You know, he, he tries one strategy and, oh, it didn't work. Right, we just come back again and we try another. <laughs> the devil is always and everywhere. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen that Keanu Reeves film. It's uh, no, the Devil's did. Advocate. I, I did. So. <laughs> Cla- classic stuff, yeah. All righty, I can see that my friend and colleague M has joined us as well. And uh, lunchtime, you had your hand up. Oh, thanks, Axel. Uh, thanks as ever for the space. Um, I just wondered, uh, have you uh, have you seen this Build article that suggests there is complicity between? Biden and Schultz to um, to effectively force Ukraine to the negotiating table by slow rolling support, uh, yeah. military support, particularly long range. Yeah, and what what is your opinion of that article? Yeah. I've seen that shared already quite a number of times, including by people who are very well informed, pro Ukrainian. I think the the question that's being raised here is this might be true, or it might be plausibly true. But how on earth is Julian Robka got access to people in Washington? I think the answer is he doesn't. Uh, so he's probably winging it. The question is, who does this benefit? Because over the last couple of weeks, people uh, who are really looking at this closely have become to get very anxious about what's actually going on and what the actual strategy is. So we all find this extremely plausible as a theory. And it's actually quite likely uh, that there has right from the start been the thinking that eventually this will end up in negotiation, that Ukraine cannot beat Russia. And I fear that that kind of defeatism um, was really laid and embedded right from the start of the conflict, even though none of us would want to believe that. It's now become so glaringly obvious, I think, um, that it's not just sort of uh, slow walking or administrative problems or whatever. This is an actual strategy 
to ensure that Russia is not significantly defeated, that it doesn't collapse, that it doesn't use nuclear weapons. We know all of this stuff. And, oh, the next guy after Putin is going to be far worse. These are all narratives that Russia themselves has put around. And, and you know, why would they do that? It would seem to undermine Russia's cause, unless you dig a little bit deeper. And as we started the conversation, what they need right now is a pause in hostility, and they need Ukraine to be forced to negotiate, which will be a humiliation for Ukraine. It means they will have peace, but no justice. They'll have temporary peace, but they won't have their land and their people back. And the guns may fall silent, but they will not be able to fully invest in and rebuild their territories or potentially build out alliances and join NATO. This would be a huge victory for Russia. So why is this built article so important? It's because it creates the mood, it creates the environment where such a scenario is plausible, where Russia doesn't look like a mad aggressor, uh, and Ukraine is forced to, uh, to go along with it. The interesting piece there is, of course, that Julian uh, Röcke travels back and forth between Ukraine and um, uh, Germany on a regular basis. And often enough, he uh, speaks to Ukrainian sources who are equally frustrated with Mr. Sullivan. And part of the strategy of not pushing ro uh, Russia over the edge is something which, by the way, Mr. Sullivan has been quoted upon on a regular basis by a number of very serious and very, uh, let's say, different journalists, but very serious journalists, whether it was in Vilnius, uh, alongside the NATO summit, or whether it was prior to that on a couple of occasions, and even after meetings with Andrei Yamak. So it's not a surprise. And again, it comes back to the fact that certain elements of this have not just, um, say, a granule of truth. Some of them are quite truthful. The problem is the way it is portrayed, meaning inevitability. And there is no such thing. This is not inevitable. This is one scenario. This is an outcome which can be a self-fulfilling prophecy if we allow it to grow and fester. It is nothing else than a sign of weakness and inflammation, quite literally. And it's not historically okay. accurate. You know, as, as we know from the Russo-Japanese War, uh, even the Finnish War, uh, Russia is not inevitable. Russian victory is not inevitable um, unless you make it so. And I think Axel's phrase there is sort of spot on there. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, um, you know, all the manager types or the lawyers and diplomats will pat themselves on the back and say, well, we did our best. But, you know, it's unavoidable, isn't it, old chap? And, um, yeah, you want to shake them vigorously and slap them a little bit. <laughs> Lunchtime, would you like to slap them a little bit? I would, do, I would do more than slap them, I think. But, uh, you know, that's why I don't move in these uh, highfalutin circles. Um, I, I mean, it, the, the suggestion, though, it isn't just um, resignation. It is complicity in shaping the outcome, you know. And, and so it's quite insidious from that point of view, uh, because what it suggests, uh, as, you, as you sort of said in, in so many words, um, is that you know that's been the plan from the beginning? Like we will just uh, we'll just look the other way, ignore the genocide, and you know it'll blow over. And of course, um, what what people say, what pro-Ukrainian, uh, well Ukrainian supporters say, all you need to do is watch 
a documentary about Maidan, and you'll see that the, these people are not so easily swept under a rug. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Let's keep our support strong and let's hope that this this is not inevitable and that we can dissuade these idiot politicians from this course. Thanks so much. Very welcome. By the way, we have to say one thing. Uh, there is, uh, of course, with Paul Ronsheimer, at least, whilst he is a journalist of build and whilst he also has done things in the past, I would not necessarily wish to see him, but it doesn't matter. He has been quite strong on what is the transatlantic um, axis of those who actually should support the pursuit of freedom. And he is the... Um, well, is he the chief editor, lead editor? Somebody needs to correct me. Anyway, so he's the one who also, therefore, is responsible for the editorial content in regard to Ukraine and politics. He tends to agree to an extent with what was stated or quoted by Mr. Rufka that um, the weakness and the, the shared or joined weakness of the White House, this White House, and uh, uh, Mr. Scholz is, um, um, yeah, a self enforcing or self-reinforcing kind of um, um, yeah, situation where both of them don't really want to lead, both of them don't really want this. But it seems always that Olaf Scholz feels more ashamed that this is all happening and that he has to tolerate it because it's so distracting him from what he would really like to do. Oh, poor, poor thing. It's ruining his... Uh, ruining his... Uh his uh you know his regime isn't it just like covid uh put a bit of uh cold sick over over poor boris's uh, time in number These 10 pesky um, ukrainians why are they fighting so hard they should just roll over and uh you know um and that's been the sort of i think the tone from from the start it's like yes they're plucky but um they they, they they don't uh, talk in the same sort of diplomatic terms, and it's a it's a little bit off, you know. They don't uh, they don't speak quite the same uh, language as us. They don't have the same sort of tolerance, and they don't have the long view in mind. Whereas, I think we'll agree that the, the Ukrainians know exactly what's going on, um, and we're the ones who uh, look look like ostriches here. I think it's also interesting to say that not everybody probably shares the Sullivan uh, kind of mentality, and. I'm planning to do an episode uh, in the next uh, week where I'll actually look up every single one of his speeches and articles in relation to Ukraine and dissect his language to see if I can sort of get down to what uh, really fires uh, his his thinking. But it is said that Blinken doesn't share that view, that Blinken wants uh, Ukraine to have a better outcome. Then you can always imagine Biden with these two little, uh, you know, little angel on one shoulder, a little devil whispering in his ear on the other. Um, or if you want another analogy, makes me think a little bit of that uh, uh, scene in in uh, Lord of the Rings, where uh, you know the, uh, the 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 servant of the king has kind of bewitched him uh, to the point of, of abject weakness, uh, so the kingdom falls. I mean that it has a, a sense of that for me. It's interesting that you would quote Mr. Blinken. I mean, nobody uh, a few years ago would have considered that Mr. Blinken ever would be the stalwart of an Atlantic deterrence. On the contrary, because he has been over his career to be one of the most dovish, one of the most elusive, one of the most um, critical of um, strength and force people. But then again, uh, sometimes uh, uh, show me 
<laughs> show me a liberal when he is under pressure. I can show you uh, how he becomes a conservative very quickly under existential threat. And it seems that is what has become of Mr. Blinken, who sees the morality of the tale, as opposed to Mr. Sullivan, who doesn't really seem to have kind of a moral uh, compunction in any shape or form. If he says that he needs Russia to be there because he believes that there is such thing as a multipolar world, as opposed to leadership by one nation, one shining city on the hill, right? Well, this is it. It's the Kissinger kind of balance of powers type thing. And of course, if you believe that that construct is inevitable and for all time, then you're not going to want it taken apart. Similarly with, with Mearsheimer and other academics. If you just count the idea that they're actually receiving barrel loads of Russian cash, um, I don't totally discount that, by the way. Um, but if you sort of discount that and you take them at their word, um, they're also defending a lifetime in academia, which threatens to be overturned by events. So you're not going to want that to happen and have to rewrite all your articles and books and reframe everything and, and look a bit sort of, uh, you know, useless. Um, so there's a lot of invested interest in that model of the True. status quo. And Mr. Sullivan, I mean, if you go back to, if you go into speeches, I, I would strongly, strongly advise to go back all the way to his time at Yale and um, when he was then recommended by someone I, who I tend to respect normally, especially on Ukraine, and that was Amy Klobuchar, who was the one who recommended him to actually then work for, uh, wait for it, Hillary Clinton. Yes. Well, whenever, whenever I get trolled by, you know, pro-Ukraine MAGA types on my channel, and there are such things, um, they always say but Hillary would have been far focused for Ukraine than, than Trump. And I, I don't quite buy it, but it's, I don't just miss it out of hand either. Let me put it this way. You can do wrong uh, from two different angles. It's still wrong in the outcome. This is it. And that's what we're seeing now. So the question becomes, if uh, distraction fatigue of Russia's strategy, um, because on the battlefield, they're unlikely to make any huge headway, and they may well continue to incrementally lose territory, especially with the bridgehead on the left bank of the Dnipro. Um, what other distractions are going to come onto our radar? Because if we're aware of it, if we're expecting it, then I think it, it, it helps us to clear some of that smoke and move some of those mirrors aside to see what's really going on. Um, question becomes, we're in our pro-Ukrainian bubble. How can we get people outside of that to really see what we see and see this process in a big historic context, which many Ukrainians do. Well, typically things which come out of, bo out of the box and which have an impact both globally in terms of media and then locally are tied to events. So if you look at the event calendar of next year, there's obviously one thing which can happen, and that is a shattering of the credibility of the uh, uh, Grand Nation, meaning uh, France, which now has the Olympic Games to be hosted by, a, uh, say, a mayor who doesn't want to host it and questions whether Paris is ready, uh, by a population which currently is being tested uh, for radical, um, poor, banlieue, Islamist, 
uh, terrorism to local festivals now also in the countryside, a French police, which at times is reacting harshly, sometimes fairly, sometimes overreacting, then um, massive infighting, uh, say protests, which were in favor of Hamas, which were thrown down, fortunately, and funnily enough, the French police actually was quite sincere about it. But still, there are unresolved issues. And if people think, and someone wrote it a little earlier today, that Ireland has been a powder keg because of failed assimilation of uh, inbound, uh, say, predominantly Muslim uh, migrants who simply couldn't uh, be, say, where the, the Irish nation was unable to find an integration concept which works with the numbers at hand, as we said earlier, France has had different issues for a lot longer out of its post-colonialism, out of significant issues of segregation and, uh, say, uh, also uh, internal racism and the likes. But there is an event upcoming, the Olympic Games, one of the biggest media events and security events on this planet. Jonathan, if you were Russian and if you had friends such as uh, the mullahs in Iran, if you had friends amongst the terrorism groups associated with Bashir al-Assad and everybody else, if you had North Korean friends and predominantly also were playing with the Cubans, the Venezuelans and everybody else who is good at terrorism, just imagine if the nation of France, which is so important in terms of both nuclear deterrence and defense, and defense, which is so important within the EU financially, economically, and militarily, and supports Ukraine at this point in time, with a president who has, uh, yeah, well, he is tolerated of, say, Russian investment still by his companies, um, and he has not been perfect on sanctions, and he has not been perfect on support, but still. But he's not been absent either. I mean, (laughs) remember the Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Sevastopol? That was British Storm Shadow and French Scout missiles leveling the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet. So Putin is is not silly. He'll see that. Um, He'll also, I would imagine, you know, the Olympics is nothing but a big world party. Imagine the biggest party in the world. Well, if you're invited you're not going to want it to go wrong or be gate-crashed. So you probably will do your bit to ensure it goes well. If you're not invited to that party and you're enviously looking over the fence at everyone having a jolly time, and if you're Russia, which by its very nature is a malevolent and envious entity and, and, and has been uh, really, let's go back to at least the Bolshevik Revolution, you're going to want to spot that party. You're going to chuck some turds over the fence and make sure it is it is not a good occasion uh, in your absence. Well, gosh, just imagine if you were to be there on site and you had Russian athletes which were then captured by uh, uh, Islamist terrorists or something like it. Just imagine that. You can be the victim and at the same time royal out the French right. Well, like Nord, Nordost, Beslan... The list is, uh, there There are cases of that, aren't there, that we can point to. So, so even if you participate, you can make hay out of it. Uh, this is it. And I think this is the trick we miss of Russian propaganda. We assign Russia too much intent and too much strategy sometimes. Sometimes, of course, they are behind things. And when we see uh, at-scale trolling, which is difficult to perhaps plan or time-consuming, 
then we can say, okay, well, this is this is a coordinated thing, and uh, we see all these narratives coming together. They're actually not brilliant at it like, because it's fairly easy to trace those sources. If, however, they react to something, it suggests that well, they're not necessarily behind it, or they may have invested in the years in in, in various groups that caused dissent and uh, distraction, but they may not have specifically known. They're very good at leveraging that. In fact, in some ways, they're far better at being opportunists uh, and then tipping petrol on the flames of a fire that's already got hold. Very well, very well. Jonathan, would you, uh, I would like to go to Ben and uh, then we'll m- maybe move forward with our topic. Ben. Thank you, Axel. Um, hello, Jonathan. It's nice to talk to you. Hi. Um, a few things. One is uh, I agree with uh, your analysis of, uh, and everyone's analysis basically of, of how we got to this point. Um, and I'll tell you one thing about, uh, and I've believed this for a long time about the slow rolling and the desire to, um, it basically to uh, to induce a stalemate in order to get. Uh, uh, Zelensky to acquiesce to a negotiated agreement to give up Crimea um, or whatever else there is. Um, and just briefly, uh, a year ago, I was in um, Bakhmut with uh, the 24th Brigade uh, filming, <clears throat> and I saw it firsthand because I wanted to film. I I, I wanted to film. Uh, the American or British weapons that uh, and show them in use, showing how great they are and have the guys talk about it. And when I got there, I said, "Okay, so I want to." Went through a whole list of things to, that I wanted to, to to film, and I was there for a while. They said, and I so I asked them, like, uh, "What do you got?" He said, "We don't have any of it. Uh, we they have one Barrett rifle, was what they had, and this was like one of the prime." Uh, brigades that was fighting in Bakhmut, they had one Barrett rifle, which was uh, the the American thing, and the rest of it was all Soviet um, that they had gotten, uh, that they had received. It's an old, the 24th Brigade is one of the oldest brigades, and um, they acquired, it, it was a Soviet brigade, became a Ukrainian brigade, and they acquired the weapons uh, Ukraine when uh, Ukraine became uh, a nation. And I knew at that time this is going to be a problem because there's just not these weapons that people are saying, oh, they have Heimers. They have there were a couple of Heimers around another brigade, but they were fighting with the old Soviet uh, Soviet stuff. And here in the media, I'm hearing, well, they're going to get Heimers. They have Heimers. They have this is coming and that's coming. And they're on the ground. I just didn't see it. And I stopped even looking for it because uh, it was just so elusive. I mean, it it. it I, I didn't want to run all around the countryside looking for basically for unicorns is what what it was. So um, uh, it, Heimers is a big word, but if you don't have enough of them, it's not a big weapon. Um, and they, I, I'm sorry. And then, but as far as where we are, I agree with you where we are. Um, and uh, the. What I'm thinking is, and I, I for a while I worked in political media in the United States on, on a high level, um, national level, and uh, there's something that you know you always try to do is define the define the narrative, and I think that that's not happening, and I think that that's uh, and and it's a real problem because um, 
what I think at the beginning uh, of the war, Zelensky was able to say, we need weapons. And the narrative was, if you give us the weapons, we'll be okay. And we'll be able to, to, to uh, defend ourselves and make it happen. And I don't think it, it, but it was never a reason why. The reason why was don't, we have to beat a bully, which the bully is uh, Russia. And uh, so that was like the reason. But I think now that that reason isn't working, giving us weapons is no longer uh, a fulcrum for, uh, for uh, giving them weapons. And, uh, but I, I just think the narrative is wrong. I think the, I really think that the stakes haven't been def defined or what's at stake and what a negotiated agreement means, which is basically in the long run is the genocide or, or the elimination of the Ukrainian nation. And I think that that has not been defined through this whole thing um, from 2014, but let's say from 2020, you know, February 24th, that what's at stake is really the existence of these people as a, as a nation, as a people. And, uh, and that's what I would like, and that's what I think may, uh, I don't think anything else is gonna change the public opinion really uh, at this point. Um, and I, I, but I think it's possible uh, to uh, make that the narrative, but it takes organization. It, ta it, it takes a few things, but that's my thinking on it. And I don't think the Ukrainians themselves are up to it um, because they're focused on other things as far as their media goes and their campaign just isn't working. Um, that's, my, that's my take on it at this point. And I think, I think that point has been made that Ukrainians are quite blunt, stubborn, but also truthful people, and they are quite impatient with with sort of idiocy, procrastination, with the sort of diplomatic language which uh, covers up uh, inaction. Um, so I don't think they have come into this playing the game necessarily. As you say, they've come in with their narrative and they've hammered it and it's worked for a while and it's a truthful narrative, so they, they don't want to change it because... Uh, you know, they're faced with, with, with bigger problems and they think it should be absolutely clear and that everyone should understand their point of view. It's become absolutely apparent to me that not many people understand this. I was at an event this week with wonderful Ukrainians in London. I won't give all the details away. Um, but there was an individual there, an individual there who was speaking. This person is pro-Ukrainian, has ancestry in Ukraine, and yet came out with stuff which is just beyond. <laughs> so, I mean, I would have shaken him and slapped him a little bit if I could, if, uh, if it was that kind of place uh, and I wouldn't have been ejected from the uh, rather polite environs of the, the club it was held in because some of the stuff he was saying was just so utterly misguided uh, and ill-informed. And then it made me think, well, hang on a second. You know, we, we sort of understand and what you've just said there is absolutely clear to me and resonates. Um, I, I, I don't think that many people really get that or understand what a malignant um, tumour of an entity Russia has become and what a threat it poses. And our politicians either don't get it or if they do, they find it too complex a message to convey to their people. Um, I'm going to throw another uh, assumption out here, but I'm going to throw another um, rather cynical idea out and I'd love to know uh, if anyone has a view on this, and that is that politicians may well have thought, okay, this Ukraine thing, it's like a 50-50. Uh, 
And of course, by undersupplying uh, weapons, they have changed the odds, um, made the odds worse for Ukraine. Ukraine has been battling to improve the odds all the way through this. Um, but politicians may be thinking at this and going, do you know what? It could go either way. It might end up in this embarrassing kind of stalemate negotiation thing. Should I put my neck on the block? Should I really go all out there, stake my reputation on it? Um, or should I just stop talking about Ukraine and focus on other things? Because do I want my name to be associated with a failure? That may sound cynical, but I, I fear that, that, that uh, there's, a, there's a high degree of timidity uh, going on here as well and uh, self-preservation amongst our political classes. Axel, do you mind if I answer, uh, respond to that? I was just about to hand it to you. Please carry uh, on. <laughs> um, well, as far as politicians go, it's it, and I, I'll tell you, I have worked uh, on, on. I don't want to go into the whole thing, but I've I've worked with all these guys. Um, not this, uh, not this crop, but uh, some of them are still there. And um, what one congressman once said to me, when he he was, I was younger, and he was giving me, telling me the ropes. And he said, nobody does anything in this town unless it's in their own self-interest. Um, I was very idealistic at the time, but at that moment, uh, I, and he, he's really a, 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 a wise, uh, he, was a, he was a very smart guy. And at that moment, I, I knew that whenever I had a meeting with any of these guys, and I'm talking about congressmen, senators, uh, higher, and I always needed to, in order, if I wanted anything done, I always needed to, uh, to uh, answer a question before it was asked. And it was only asked once. And I was very able, I was able to get stuff done because I understood the mentality. And it, I was only asked this once straight out, which is uh, a, a congressman said to me, what's in it for me? Because you can tell them any kind of lofty idea that you want. And this is all of them pretty much. And you, when you're on the outside, it looks like, you know, your ideals and, 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 you know, all the, all of this, whatever it might be that you have in mind, but really, as he put it, you know, there are a hundred people that come to me every hour who want me to do something. Why, how do you think I decide what to do? It's what's best for me. And it really is true. And I have no problem with that. That's the way the system works. So in order to in order to succeed in that system, this is American politics, by the way, um, in order to succeed in that system, uh, you have to be able to understand that mentality in order to work with that mentality. I think with Sullivan and and um, and uh, and what's his name, Blinken, and also we can't discount the others. There, there's something else going on there that has to do with ideology. Um, so, so you have two different, you have, so like the, this, the few senators and congressmen are one way to approach it. The ideal, the ideologues, um, are, is another way. And I think it's possible, but I, you know, it, it, I think it's possible. I won't go into all the details here, but I do think it's possible, but it really takes some real thought and coordination. And I don't see anybody out there who really has the knowledge or ability, um, to pull it off. Really. It takes really somebody who knows how to make it happen. Um, and it's not enough just to say they need it. Which is what we said many times before, that in this administration, exactly that person who can grip this and do it 
is really not there. There is no mm. unique personality. At least we haven't seen anyone. Or have you, Jonathan? Uh, no, no. I mean, it's entirely absent. Ironically, there are two people. There's a few people I'm going to try and get on the channel because it would be enormous fun, but also perhaps important. Uh, Chris Christie, uh, Nikki Haley, and uh, Bernie Sanders, three of my targets to get on the channel to talk about this, because at least in their words, they seem far more dynamic than the actions we see taking place. I mean, it's quite something where, you know, Boris Johnson looks like an extraordinary risk-taker and idealist uh, for the stance he took on Ukraine. But even then, I chatted to uh, some people who call themselves some of his best friends, if, if, if such a thing exists in, in that sphere. And they, uh, after a few drinks, sort of candidly said, look, Boris doesn't do anything unless it's in his own self-interests. Uh, and that's exactly, you know, the phrase um, that was just used there. But I think what Johnson saw was an opportunity to cover up uh, London Grant and all the awful awful connections to Russia and corruption that taken place. And it was a very neat trick because it succeeded in brushing that all under the carpet and, and sort of moving on, as well as doing something that's highly principled. It's an extraordinary feat that, uh, that he pulled off there. I do also think that he there was a certain amount of genuine belief in the cause. I don't want to completely malign it. <laughs> <Johnson>. um, <laughs> See? Same thing. Because a, a granular, a, granular yeah. of truth. There is a grain of truth there, and you see an opportunity. I think that's the difference between what's going on in Washington, Berlin, Paris, is these politicians do not have the imagination to see an opportunity there. And then if they don't see the opportunity, they can't really grasp why it's in their interests or even how to go about achieving it. And whereas what Johnson saw is his Churchillian moment, and he was obviously uh, couldn't see it through. But there's his Churchillian moment. I can be something. I can change history and be this kind of figure, which, uh, you know, I've been dreaming about since I was a sort of, you know, eight-year-old boy or whatever it is. Uh, and he saw the opportunity and he, he grasped it. And he also must have had some sense of the commitment that was required to do it and decided to, to make that leap. Um, a little bit like Brexit. You know, you could say that, that is maybe an awful decision. You could say that he perhaps... Um, as is reputed, he wrote two letters, one pro and one anti. And, you know, he saw more opportunity in, in, in going for the anti-EU stance. But once he'd made that decision, he kind of followed through fairly vigorously with it, uh, with disastrous results, of course. Um, but what we're seeing is an extraordinary situation, I think, now. Unlike the Second World War, where you have Germany and Britain utilising everything they've got... Uh, industry, intelligence, material, everything to win. And it's a struggle of invention, a struggle of industrial might, of will, of an ideology. What we see here is a struggle to see who crumbles first. We use the phrase brittle, and Metal Gear fellow popped a little question over um, in the chat there, uh, and that is... You know, we described Putin's regime as brittle. What about the US and the German governments? Exactly. We've got a series of brittle governments lacking willpower, lacking any real belief or idea of how they can transform 
their countries or vision for the future. They are just managing day by day, managing the message. And what we're in is a race to see who crumbles first. Ukraine won't. It's that bit of granite that is sticking up in between the sandstone. While everything else gets washed away, Ukraine is there sticking out like that sort of solid rock that's going to be there forever. Um, but around it, who's going to crumble first, the West or Putin's evil empire? And at this point, it's kind of 50-50, I'd say. Is it really? Because the West is just uh, literally in a situation um, and it's very difficult to do always. I mean, the, the, there's no direct comparison, but it seems always like in the run up to Pearl Harbor, uh, the position of the United States was lukewarm and Britain complained about it for good reason, albeit that it had already uh, obtained and received sufficient support, but it didn't have troop support. And Britain knew that it would have to scale up substantial amount of capacity uh, to battle and Without the United States in, in full scale, it would not have worked throughout the Second World War. And the arsenal of democracy was predominantly one which was funded out of America. Yes, British industry, by the way, produced more airframes than the United States during the Second World War. Nobody wants to hear this, but this is the truth. The funny part is that here we have the same thing. We have the complacency. We spoke about this before once. Jonathan, maybe we should highlight this again. If the West had accepted that this is a necessary existential fight with evil, in such instance, politicians should not be hard-pressed. They should actually be volunteering to lead their people and make sure that we go through, uh, say, retooling, as you said, and uh, upgrading our production capacity and shelling out substantial amount of uh, weapon systems to have Ukraine win quickly. Absolutely. And even if we feared moving too quickly uh, because of the Russian nuclear threat, if we said, OK, we're going to boil the frog, but we're going to progressively turn the temperature up, um, then we could have done that. We could have done that by incrementally making sure the right weapon systems get through in the right volumes, uh, sending stuff through back channels, providing uh, long range attackums, etc., getting F-16s in, imposing fly zone. If we'd done it all at once, then yes, maybe that wouldn't have been the right thing. And in that respect, Biden's caution maybe has some strategic purpose. But if boil the frog is the strategy, then we'd have done a lot more. And we would have seen this ratcheting up as Russia crumbled. By now, Russia probably would have crumbled if we followed that strategy. But that's clear now that that's not the strategy. The strategy is almost to starve Ukraine to ensure that it is not defeated, but to ensure that Russia is not beaten. And that is a shameful, immoral uh, lack of vision and leadership, I think. Apart from uh, me now uh, waiting for the first bathing the frog memes coming up for Mr. Sullivan, Jonathan, you just stated something which was nearly as... uh clear as the statements Paul Ronsheimer and Mr. Julian Röpke made because maybe, just maybe that big grain of salt in there is really big, that they, in both their strategies as well as their incompetence, whilst maybe not having openly agreed, but tentatively have reinforced themselves or each other to get there. I think, I think it is. I think it's, it's creating an echo chamber 
as you said earlier, where this seems like an inevitability. What is a policy that is still in some ways being contested? Um, you create an environment where that seems uh, like the foregone conclusion, which in fact it, it isn't. Um, this is perhaps where Russian propaganda is now, um, because the consequences of Russia going all in. Now, this is this is an economic, another Russian propaganda thing, where obviously they've they've committed a lot to the fight, um, to the point where they've they've made their own system relatively brittle and increased risks hugely. But at the same time, they have uh, allowed uh, potentially millions of Russians to leave the country and reduce reduce the potential internal pressure for revolt and so on. They've used economical terror, etc. So they've used a lot of the tools in their book, and they've been rather successful at it. If they wanted to ratchet this up further, then there would have to be significant changes to their strategy as well. And that would include mass mobilization from the big cities, uh, and sending whatever material they've got left and potentially splurging on, uh, you know, purchasing this stuff uh, wherever they can. Um, they are all apparently trying to recall equipment that they've sold to India and other places, trying to get it back and potentially even buy it back for more uh, than they, they sold some of this kit for. Um, but if they really wanted to make some serious progress in the war, um, they would have to make some changes in their strategy. So I don't think that's what they're going to do. They they want to damp this down, uh, tie up Ukraine in all sorts of conditions, such as not joining NATO. Um, and partly they succeed in, in, in turning huge areas of Ukraine into a kind of basket case. Um, the question also comes on supporting the Ukrainian economy. We know that tech and so on is incredibly vital and um, is going to be a powerhouse of their economy. But it, it's also in a wretched condition. If you take away Western support, American support particularly, uh, that pays you know, firefighters, ambulance crews, all this kind of stuff, if that economic funding disappeared, then what would Ukraine pay everybody who's fighting? Uh, so this is, this is, I think, a far more dangerous situation, uh, and Russia is acutely aware of, of really how on a knife edge this is and how Ukraine could be forced to negotiation. Of course, Zelensky's government would not survive such a uh, humiliation. And, and the EU has committed long-term funds already. So there, uh, and maybe that, that's one thing where the uh, capriciousness and sometimes the stubbornness and uh, the immobility of the EU is quite helpful because they, in their last commitments, they really had to... Sl uh, you know, they really had to go full slugger there, and uh, they committed to a large-scale funding setup in terms of financial support and humanitarian support for Ukraine. So there is a structural tie-up already, and there's massive amount of liquidity going to Ukraine, as opposed to mm. the, you know, more structured and more parceled-out U.S. approach. That is interesting, yes, and it's it so important as well to give that sort of... Uh a little bit of assurance that it's not going to withdraw. I mean, most Ukrainians will, would carry on. I speak to so many Ukrainians who, who've given up paid work and are using their savings to volunteer, um, you know, creating camo netting. Uh, I spoke to someone this morning who 
um, does sort of frontline uh, uh, medical assistance and also raises funds for other frontline medics. So many Ukrainians are not not part of, I'd say, the the peacetime economy. They're using all their time and resources to channel towards victory. So even if all this funding was cut off, Ukrainians would, would still keep going. They wouldn't just, you know, lay down and uh, and accept it. That That's going to be quite a difficult situation, I think. Um, other people have said that, you know what, we'll get to a point where if Russia starts to look like it's gaining the upper hand, there'll be some degree of panic and we'll flip-flop and then we'll pump more in there because, again, we don't want to see a Russian victory, even if we don't want to see them defeated either. Whatever muddled thinking that happens to be, um, I've now heard this from, from, from many people, this idea that we, we cannot allow either a victory or defeat by Russia. So what, what do we want, really? Well, whoever says this, uh, either it's an observer and doesn't know, uh, doesn't know how the, the force of war actually is wielded or how it actually breaks its breaks its path anyway. And if these are decision makers, then they should really actually go back to the drawing board um, because that, in, in effect, will only um, say, how should we put this back into the uh, image of the boil? It will make it fester further. Exactly. We got got the hands up there. Harry, uh, yeah, who asked the, Harry, who asked the question. <laughs> yes. With Terry, then with Dave, then with Marcus. Terry, please go. Thank you. Hi. Um, this discussion about the fact that we're sort of, that you reckon that it's sort of 50 50, it can go either way. Do you think these politicians are sort of just waiting to see which way it tips? Or do you, I, I just cannot fathom how. They think it's better that Russia wins in the end. And I don't believe that Ukraine will ever, ever, ever give up. I think they've already started making contingency factors if, if uh, you know, the Western support does disappear. Um, they're already increasing the amount of ammo that they produce themselves. They're making sure their drones are much better and everything else. But I think they feel they've come so far. No way are we going to stop now. Um, and but, but I just think perhaps is it that the West is too fearful of Ukraine winning, that maybe Zelensky talked about there's no decent leaders. To me, Zelensky is the only decent leader around at the moment, apart from maybe some of the other um, Eastern European countries who all understand what um, Ukraine is going through. Um, so could it be that the West is fearful, more fearful of Ukraine than of Russia? Um, uh, yeah. And my final thing, it, it relates slightly to what Ben was saying about the politician saying, well, what's in it for me? Uh, one of my thoughts was, well, do you want to go down in the history books as a Chamberlain or a Churchill? And whether that would do anything to convince them. Do they want to be on the right? Because they will be the ones that get blamed in the end, I think, if Ukraine and the rest of Europe um, ends up struggling. So I'll stop there because I could rant. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump into that because some of the things you said there are things that I've been thinking about actually even going, I mean, one of the first interviews I did, I asked a question that was very similar to this when, you know, 
Britain was supplying analogs and stuff, but, but but the other countries hadn't quite sort of stepped up. And Britain and, and the US were starting to supply those defensive weaponries when the convoy was forming around Kiev. And I said, look, is there a possibility here that France and Germany are really going to go slow on this? Because old Europe is not going to want the military and economic center of gravity to shift decisively east. And I've been assured by many people, no, 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 that's far too cynical. That's never going to happen. I still think that there's an aspect of, of this going on. Um, Ukraine mustn't fall, but it mustn't win decisively, because then you'll see this extraordinary power center emerging. Latterly, and I think it's important to say this in the week of uh, the anniversary of Maidan and the Orange Revolution, what Ukraine has shown us is that it doesn't just challenge authoritarian regimes like Russia. It challenges our old moribund democracies as well. Ukrainian intolerance to going slow, to diplomatic language, to sort of, you know, good intentions, but not carrying them out. Ukrainians do not like that kind of hypocrisy. And I think there's a certain fear that if you let these guys in, a victorious Ukraine, you let them in, they're going to want to change everything. They're going to shake it all up. That's a threat for Europe, as well as a threat for Russia's uh, established system of government. We had this discussion here with uh, Olena Halushka and uh, Victoria Wojstitska, uh, two well-known activists uh, on the political side for Ukraine. Um, this was pretty much, I think, last year in summer, July, August and the likes. And I think there still is a tendency within Europe to often somehow derogate some of the Eastern European politicians, and specifically now the ones from Ukraine, as well as, of course, uh, Romania, uh, been, uh, where politicians, for good or for worse, have been treated uh, in Brussels, not necessarily equally, but then again, the same applied also to some uh, others. And it seemed at that time that somehow during summer last year, many people in Brussels actually came around to understand that there is a, a substantial amount of dynamism, positive dynamics, positive contribution coming out of what is the crucible of Ukraine uh, going through the war and its fight for freedom. At some point in time, the inertia of bureaucracy and complacency and the predilections of people for a supposed equilibrium of stability is probably going to overtake. And you could, of course, always argue with the slapdown argument of the common agricultural policy and uh, that nobody in France would want this and whatnot. But at the same time, uh, Ukraine is one of the major exporters, for example, of grain, rather than ex an exporters ex-EU, ex-EEA. So it doesn't really impact that. So it's, it's very difficult to see how a subsidy regime would necessarily have to be completely changed if it were, for example, more regional dependent, more dependent on, for example, the protection of water resources, which is one of the main factors in agricultural policy, which I think the Dutch have just recently introduced also in Brussels. So maybe we, should, we see dynamism to overtake the whole thing. And that um, concern which you just raised 
may fade into the background. If you don't mind, Jonathan, I would like to go to Dave, then Marcus, and then Ben, because we have loads and loads of questions. Yeah, so I, I wanted to push back quite strongly on this uh, idea that you know the West is the, the, the West is brittle and uh, um, and uh, you know we're starving Ukraine of 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 support. And I think um, the the reason I'm saying that is because I think that's pure that that is pure Russian narrative, and that's exactly the message that Russia wants to get across. And I think that in the in the information space, it really isn't a knife edge um, uh, to a large extent. But I really, I really think that you know, uh, one way or another, Ukraine has to win this, and liberal democracy has to succeed. And if it doesn't, then um, it just gets more and more expensive the longer it goes on, both in terms of life and in terms of, uh, of dollars. Um, what, what's in it? What's in it for people is, is I think, is money. At the end of the day, uh, the the, uh, the world economy is going to be much stronger with Ukraine on, on the right side, and an, uh, Ukraine hobbled by Russia is is in nobody apart from Russia's interest. At the end of the day, uh, I think you know one, one of the key motivations for having this session on Friday Friday evenings with with you, Jonathan, was really to, to kind of join up the dots. So I think one of the things is how do we seize how do we seize the initiative on the narrative, the thing that Ben was talking about. How do we actually do that? Because um, you know, as as you said, on, on a state level, there's no one really there joining up the dots and making the argument. On, on the individual level, on the grassroots level, you know, there's something like NAFO, um, which is just kind of tickling around the edge from my perspective. Um, and there's a big hole in the middle, right, where um, other other actors in the information space need 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 desperately to, to kind of work together. <laughs> and, and that's, uh, that, you know, that's why I contacted you in the first place. Um, so, um, you know, mm. maybe we a little bit more about this well i think i think it's about creating opportunities isn't it and i would i mean it's difficult because we're all speaking to different people i have spoken to quite a lot of people who are sort of on the front uh and who are sort of say senior in their battalions and so on and it's definitely the case that they're not getting everything they need <clears throat> and it's definitely the case that i don't think they're being supplied to to have a decisive victory um, now, there's various reasons, obviously, behind that, which we've gone through. Not all of them are going to be nefarious. Some of them are just, you know, we, we haven't invested in this stuff. Uh, we haven't re retooled our factories uh, and we've wound our stocks down. So there's there's a certain amount of, of, uh, sort of legacy issue going on there. When it comes to disinformation, this is a fascinating thing because NAFO is very effective at, at uh, trying to neutralize uh, the the effect of Russian disinformation, say, on Twitter, um, amongst a certain audience. And that's great. There's a huge role for that. It's a great morale booster for Ukrainians as well, because you see the trucks and the cars going out to the front with the NAFO imagery there, Ukrainians themselves taking part in that. So it's a great tool for unifying people who are already energized to support Ukraine. I think that's what you're talking to there. The trouble is they're not the big decision makers. And what I see is academics, incredible academics like Mark Galliotti, Jane McGlynn and so on, doing incredible stuff. Um, 
But again, you have to think that's, you know, they're reaching further out in the bubble, but you're still talking to people who are already fairly convinced of these arguments. How can you break these down? Then you've got London doing extraordinary events, um, and a lot of them are culturally themed. But again, there's not much, there's not a huge sort of Venn diagram overlap between the sort of political conferences and the other people doing this and the other people doing that. Everyone is acting to energize their own bubbles. And to an extent, those bubbles consist of people who've self-selected to be part of those bubbles. Um, so we get the impression that this is incredibly vibrant and important. We all get it. And then you step outside your bubble and you realize most of the world is not paying attention. And those who are making decisions don't really get it. Um, I mean, my, my solution is let it, do more, do more videos, do more events. I'm only one person, but I would love to do more events that have a much broader appeal and think about how you can actually get policymakers uh, and decision makers to actually come along to those events and introduce them to the materials, let's say on my channel, on other channels where these issues are discussed in, in detail. Um, see if you could try and get them exposed to alternative narratives that challenge uh, you know, their, their way of thinking. Um, I say I don't have a clear solution, except that I suspect that the US election is a good opportunity for this. If we can get some of the you know, rational um, uh, competitors uh, on, the, on the Republican side to really start talking this stuff up, um, that, that may be seen as a threat but also an opportunity on Democrat side and like, oh, hang on a second, you know, we thought we could forget about this and move on. No, we can't because um, I'm not the most best informed to talk about US politics, but it strikes me that we need to. <laughs> no, I think you're right. Yeah, we need to get, yeah, get this out there. If Nikki Haley picked up on all of this stuff, then I think that there'd be a home run. I think she's a, she, she really is in a, in a strong position, but that click, that that click just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, she also needs to gain momentum first and order to be there and talk more about foreign policy because she can't win the election just on foreign policy credentials, which nobody denies that she has. Now, having said this, uh, Jonathan, when you when you just spoke about the bubble, the exposure, the fact that all these wonderful efforts are, are commendable, but they don't have enough exposure, isn't it also true that many people have completely underestimated this serious funnel, which, for example, the BBC is, because we can see it now with the pro-Hamas position and the support, many of the BBC production teams, editors, moderators, and commentators have taken uh, how um, a whole population focuses, where procures its information from, and that is still the beat. In terms of crisis, People do not necessarily turn to Sky News. Yes, when there's immediate, when they want to see one or two interviews or they want to see some some heroic war reporter going somewhere, yes, Sky News will yes. be there, no, no question. And they are there, and sometimes they are faster. But then again, everybody still turns back to the, the realm of the Dimblebees. They do, yeah. Channel 4, Sky News, interestingly, have been much more robust on this with some incredible uh, reporting. But again, reporting is one thing, isn't it? Whereas strategic analysis is another. And even the best reporting tends not to stick its neck too far out or join the dots or make those kind of 
connections between things. Um, BBC, yeah, I tuned out quite a while ago, uh, 2016 pretty much. I started to diverse, uh, diversify away from from that. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's primarily about entertainment. It's more about entertaining. And I've come to see that, that, that many of the journalists there, rather than looking at reality and trying to figure out how to communicate that to people, they're looking at the people and thinking, how can I package up reality to make it more entertaining or, you know, a juicy morsel that they're going to go for? And by the way, how can I make myself look good as part of telling that story? Sounds incredibly cynical. That's how I've come to see a lot of those. What? Vanity <laughs> in media? Vanity? No, no, come on. No, um, no, no, never happens. No, I have to say it's different. Where you have some foreign correspondents, especially the ones that may go on the BBC World Service and do those little programs that, that, that almost no one listens to, um, there are some incredible foreign correspondents and there are some incredible... BBC people on the channel, uh, especially Beverly Chiang, who's reporting from uh, the Sahel and the stuff that Wagner is doing. Extraordinary brave individual who's joining all the dots there, but who's, who's listening. Um, uh, Grigor Artanesian, who uh, works with Alan Curtis. Again, another incredible interview talking about the industry behind the uh, Zed Patriots, the sort of blood and circuses that... Uh, that the third Rome of Moscow has become. Um, so there are individuals doing incredible stuff there, but where you know who's who's paying attention, or are the right people paying attention? They're almost certainly not. And the mainstream, as you say, is is not touching any of this because they've got a very so, different. Un- un- uh, unless we get uh, the Silicon Curtain and others onto Panorama, uh, yeah, or that's on... it. because th- well, that's uh, what it is. It still has. Funny enough, reach. It has depth, breadth, and reach within the society and therefore shifts the debate in a strange way. Yes, and people need to be more active. I mean, this is this is kind of kind of interesting. There's a, most of my speakers will come on and do their thing and incredibly generous with their time. I'm extraordinarily generous. Most people I contact will say yes and then they turn up, give it their all, no one's asked for any payment. And then they'll share it on the social media. And you cannot ask more than that. That is incredible. Almost none of them will then get back in touch and say, ah, by the way, I've just thought of another guest for your channel. You have to speak to this. So there isn't the sort of follow-up action. There isn't the, uh, I would say, aggressive sort of networking and action-led stuff. Maybe about 1% or fewer of the 300 people I've, I've, I've interviewed now actually go and say, do you know what? And they follow up. And they share links and they introduce you to somebody else. And I think that's our problem as well. You know, we're great consumers of information. It's a problem with Russians too. You know, they're listening to all these opposition channels and they're coming and ring, And so they may have reasonably good information. But what do you do with it? Do you, do you go to the pub and tell random strangers about it? Do you share the links? Do you behave like the propagandists behave? Because we know that the propagandists will be hunting. They'll be hunting, they'll be sniffing for people who are open to this information. Once they find someone and they've got a little bit of a hook in, then they'll share links, they'll share videos, they'll get into a bait and an argument, and they won't let go until they've got that person to enter their bubble. That, that's how these paid propagandists work. If we're going to be activists, we kind of need to be a little more out there, sharing and networking 
and pushing this stuff. There you go. All righty. We have three more hands. Jonathan, do you still have a few minutes with us? Do. Let's give it another 10 minutes, so then I'm going to have to go and uh, do some frog sitting, I think. <laughs> All right, Marcus. That's uh, we'll not literally you. sitting on a sprog, by the way, for those who aren't, <laughs> you know, the British idiom there. I'm not. And a sprog is a child. Right? I'm sorry, that whole thing went horribly wrong there. Sorry. No, no, no. It's completely correct. Absolutely. The bloody sprogs. Marcus. Yes. Okay, so let's. Um, I've got things I want to respond to all down the line here. Beneficial, please, con- please, please reach out to Cece. Um, as you know, she's invested a tremendous amount of personal effort and capital into exactly what you were speaking about. Um, and I've never met, uh, well, I've met few people so deserving of uh, assistance in achieving what they want uh, to have happen because she wants it for good reasons, not for herself. Um, next, Jonathan. Okay. Um, so the race to see who crumbles first, you're correct. Um, uh, but the discordance we see between the two sides that discuss the issue, I think, comes about because the main actor on in this race on one side, Ukraine, is not waiting to see who crumbles first. <laughs> Their primary partner and the only person that can give them some things that they, they, the other side at kind of uh, takes for granted the West um, is the one that's waiting to see who comes first, potentially, if that theory holds up. My point being, I think that's part of the discordance that you see when people on one side are like, whoa, this side's fighting for their life, um, and why aren't you more serious about it? And uh, it, the people that aren't fighting for their life are like, well, this is one of 40 policy issues, um, which is a remarkable way to think of it. Um, considering the stakes involved um, and how clear they've been made to people with videos and photos. Um, there's no reason to pretend it's not a genocide or that it's something that you don't have to put aside politics for the next election for. Like, I find that um, shocking how many people are still in office. I understand people are in office in, um, with it. Their primary goal is to be in office next year, which is kind of like me not doing my job as an engineer because I'm lobbying for a job as an engineer. It's an, it's an insane thought process, um, which is why I don't think I'd be able to cope with politics. Um, so that's that's one thing. Okay, so yeah, it's uh, that's incredibly just depressing. But um, let's see, running the best strategy. <laughs> sorry um yeah it's our that's right russia's best strategy for crumbling sorry i took quick notes because i'm at work so i'm working at the same time so when you were saying that Russia, i think russia's best strategy is this to um take a chisel into the edifice of the western um world order and then hit that with a hammer and then see what cracks and try to open up those cracks into giant fissures that's what they do um, and from an outside looking in, I think that's an incredibly powerful strategy that we can't do as well as they can. Um, however, um, it's our choice every day to continue allowing this to happen because we're not asking our leaders to be leaders. Um, we're permitting them to be the equivalent of nine to five employees at a company they don't believe in, um, rather than trying to lead that company. Like it, that, that part's crazy. 
so many politicians are just punching a clock. You know what I mean? I can't, I can't understand it. Um, Terry's correct. Next one. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, Martin, if you have a question, yeah. give them, mindful of Jonathan's time, if you have a question, uh, let's get to that question rather than going, uh, going through like a yes. know, declining okay. Latin so, grammar. So, yeah. So my point is, how do we be as effective? You made a good point about um, trying to be as effective as a propagandist in, is in terms of carrying our point forward and following up on our points and not just putting the cursory effort into it. Um, how do we best indicate to our leaders that or demand of our leaders this? Is it to just try to elect people that aren't nine to five punch in, punch out without passion? Um, I don't know. I don't think we have time, do we, for that? I mean, that's the problem. We do not have time for a generational change. I mean, we need to work on that anyway. But to convince the current lot, the ones that we, we've got, and in some ways, you know, you, you, we get the politicians we deserve, um, they're, they're clearly not deterring Russia. They're, and as you say, they're enabling Russia by not, by not challenging it. And that's, that's been going on from day one here. And the argument to arm Ukraine because it's deserving isn't working. The argument, unfortunately, that this is a full-blown genocide is not working yet. But we need to use a carrot and stick. We need to show these politicians, because if they're self-interested, and we kind of suspect they are, they need to see what's in it for them. We need to give them a big opportunity that if they're going to follow through with this, it's not going to rebound badly on them, quite the reverse. It's going to really cover them in glory, both in the short term and the long term. So we've got to give that sort of that carrot to them uh, because they then have to communicate that. Uh, and it's a complex thing, obviously, to their electorates of why all this money is going to have to go on that stuff and why it's so important. The other one is the stick. Do they really want to be associated with one of the worst genocides in history? Do they want to have that albatross around their necks and forever be associated with a gargantuan failure that is going to be on the scale or even worse than, you know, Vietnam and all these other things? Um, and tarred with that brush of being utterly, they don't want that, you know. And I, I think we need to maybe use that carrot and stick a little bit more and maybe even, you know, get their opponents to realize that they could use these. Uh, to force, force some kind of action. So it's about changing, I think, the dialogue, changing the debate and, uh, and creating a sense of opportunity, but also creating that sense of, of urgency and threat somehow. That's not really a solution. I mean, that's just a methodology. I don't know exactly how to achieve that. I mean, my that point of it is... It, it, it fits, <laughs> fits into the political activism uh, approach of making sure that all sides engaged in elections are motivated to take up certain arguments in order to uh, reach, uh, say, shifting shifting the balance, shifting the debate. All righty, we have Bull Terry, and then we have Beneficial. Bull Terry, your question. Yeah, hi. A really interesting discussion. And, uh, you know, I think the Vietnam comparison is uh, very, very uh, important. Uh, I mean, it took about nine years for North Vietnam to uh, win against the U.S., and what they won in the end was the information war. Uh, I mean, U.S. public opinion changed uh, um, and 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 moved against uh, the 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 war, 
And that's what really, really did it. I mean, but in essence, North Vietnam was a nationalist struggle. They wouldn't give up. Uh, and it was the atrocities of My Lai uh, and, and other uh, things that uh, really uh, uh, made that Walter, happen. we're not going to relitigate Vietnam now. Let's, uh, mindful of Jonathan's time, let's go into the question. Sure, yeah. So um, I'm just saying that uh, I think that, that there's uh, some similarities with Bakhmut, with Mariupol, um, and I agree that uh, that uh, uh, Ukraine needs to win the information war. I think they are winning the information war. Um, but the question is, and I think it's been posed by other speakers, how do we make that happen? How do we make sure that that uh, happens. You know, the question, do they, do we want to be associated, you know, with the biggest uh, failure in history? I mean, the problem is, I think that in the US, there are some politicians that, like Trump, who really don't care. And how do we make it uh, that, you know, they do care? Well, here's, here's an answer which perhaps would be a link to the next ep- uh, sort of, you know, session uh, that we do. And that is that I also fear that the cautionary approach um, that is being displayed by the Biden uh, administration, about to call it regime, um, it's also limiting other things. Ukraine are great at opportunities. They're great at thinking outside the box. And they have the Russian legion there. They have drone capabilities, etc. And they've been doing some fairly sort of wild stuff. I fear that they've been leaned on and told, hang on a second, this stuff, you know, okay, hit stuff within the territory of Ukraine, but uh, leave Russia alone. Don't, don't do all this alternative warfare stuff. The way Ukraine is going to win the information war is by doing some of this really out-of-the-box thinking, um, destabilizing Russia, destabilizing Belarus, bringing the war home, sending, you know, subversive, uh, these Russian legions to take Belgorod, Rostov-on-Don, doing crazy stuff that no one expects. That is how you change the information space um, and how people and will see works. Ukraine differently. And you, then you undermine Russia because suddenly, suddenly their regime is under threat and it's no longer... Ukraine war stabilizing the regime, because that's what's happening right now. The Ukraine war, the forever war, is stabilizing the elite. It's making Putin less likely to suffer a coup uh, from above and a revolution from below, although that's very unlikely anyway, um, because they're not really feeling it. It's not threatening the, you know, it's not an existential threat. What happens in Ukraine and the neo-Stalinist uh, sort of murder, rape, torture that is going on in the occupied territories. None of this is an existential threat to Putin's regime. If it was, he would draw in his claws to protect, you know, the motherland. So we have to we have to unleash Ukraine to do what it does best and is this sort of radical uh, kind of alternative warfare. Very good point, because uh, I said it worked. Uh, remember, the enthusiasm, the excitement, the world media response to Bielorodska uh, Respublika, 
think about how it hit everyone when uh, operatives um, from Ukraine managed to infiltrate Russia and take out one of their um, AWACS planes. Think about how this helped when they hit Engels Air Base. These are the kind of things people need to see. Striking the Kerch Bridge excited the whole um, Western support because it had a media impact. And that, again, brings exposure. The next time when Ukraine does something like it, and this is like in Normandy, you know, there is that dang beach and you're facing this stupid wall and this concrete barrier. When you explode it, when you manage to get through it, when there's the breach, we need to get through it. The next time the opportunity arises to elevate, expand, and multiply the message, we need to make sure that Ukraine is front and center yet again. Well, let's take one more, and then I'm going to have to... Okay, then we'll go to Ben, off. because he had, he had his hand up very patiently, and uh, he was the third of line. Ben, please. Thanks, Axel. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, the way the way I see it is, um, sorry about that, is that we have uh, the military people like General Keane, uh, General Hodges, Petraeus, and in England, uh, you know Ben Wallace and and those folks. They they see a path to victory. They see a means of of victory. But in the information space, we don't have a a clear vision of how to achieve a victory. And that's where it's really get. That's where the muddle is, and what what's impeding everything. And so my my and I I think I have some ideas. I mean, a lot of people do, but I mean, and I'll just answer your what you said uh, or define it, and then ask you a question, which is yeah. It in order to uh, affect, and we're only talking about a few people in the United States that happen to be in Congress and uh, in the White House. Um, in order to affect them, I think that the Ukraine fanatics, the people who are, we're talking about, Maria Report people, NAFO people, I put them in a category, let's call it marketing, that I call them the U Ukraine fanatics. We're the Ukraine fanatics. We don't need to win that group. Um, and that group is fine. Um, but, the, the, but it has to expand beyond the Ukraine fanatics in order to influence these people with the right discussion. And I, I have some thoughts on that about uh, churches and... Um, women and other other ways of breaking out, which is one of the reasons why I made the film. I've been thinking about this now for two years because that's the purpose of it. But so with when it comes to mobilizing people who are thoughtful, which are very few when it comes to this business, because I know this business, you come across a lot of people. What do you hear from them? I mean, yeah, everybody talks like a kitchen table, what's wrong? And like, that's basically most Twitter spaces. It's what's wrong with things or or military things. But when it comes to like the big picture um, and people who want to do something, but they don't know what it is, who have some ability to organize or finance or whatever it is, you come across those people who are thinking, what the hell? How can this, how can we do better? Not many, but I do. There are a few. I mean, there's, there's, and they tend to reach out and they tend to reach out with ideas. So there are a few who've done that. And um, uh, what's interesting about it is sometimes I'll interview somebody and then these people will say, do you know what? I know somebody who does this, right? Like we can take that tech or that idea or we can put it in this other context. And that does happen occasionally. But it, 
far uh, too infrequently. So the, the question is, that's, we can't manufacture that because I don't think you can just make people be that entrepreneurial. Um, so how are we going to change the debate? I think we need to talk about victory. Talk about the generals who see a path to victory. We need to talk about that more, as you say, and not just know how do you then do that. That's important, but just use the word victory like a mantra and, uh, and try to change the general tone. The detail will then sort of come. And we know that Ukrainians, give them the opportunity, give them the space. They'll find a way to do it. Even if the path to that is not 100% clear right now, you've got to have absolute belief in that idea of victory. And that goes back into the information space because I know that's what we're talking about. A lot of stuff can be negative. A lot of stuff is responding to negativity. But actually, we, we kind of need to carry on being bullish and we need to change the tone and talk about sort of you know, victory a lot more. Yeah, that should be essentially the key question of each and every segment. How do we achieve victory? What can we do today in order to achieve victory? Yeah, because that's what Ukrainians are doing. I mean, every single one of them are doing that, that I've spoken to. And they may not necessarily, not everyone can do that or is in the right place mentally or physically to do that. But almost all of my Ukrainian guests, every single moment of every day, they're working towards this thing they call victory. Um, and they don't allow themselves to disbelieve in that for, for one second. And I guess we need to be more like Ukrainians. Be more Ukrainian is the, is, is the strap line there. I think that's a great closing sentence also, Jovan. Be more Ukrainian. Strive for, strive for victory every day. That's it. And that's probably the point we're all about with that thought. And then yeah, maybe the next one we can talk about uh, alternative alternative informational and uh, and other types of warfare. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Yet again, absolute pleasure and privilege. Lots of fun. And uh, given the fact that the topic is actually not so funny, but uh, it's good that we'll say keep it on an even keel with a bit of humor here. Thank you for that. Everybody, Thank you. please give a big hand to Silicon Clinton, to Jonathan Fink. And um, we shall see you soon.